फ्रेंड्स दिस इज केजीएस यू स्टैंडफर्ड 90.1 FM आई एम प्रांजलि एंड यू आर लिसनिंग टू चाय टाइम टुडे वी हैव अ वेरी स्पेशल गेस्ट ऑन आवर शो संदीप रॉय संदीप रॉय सीनियर एडिटर एट firstpost.com एंड ब्लॉग्स फॉर द हफिंगटन पोस्ट ही हैज बीन अ लॉन्ग टाइम कमेंटेटर ऑन एनपीआर्स मॉर्निंग एडिशन एंड हैज अ वीकली रेडियो प्रोग्राम फॉर पब्लिक रेडियो इन द सैन फ्रांसिस्को एरिया कॉल्ड संदीप रॉयज डिस्पैचेस फ्रॉम कोलकाता ही इज आल्सो एन एडिटर विद न्यू अमेरिका मीडिया संदीप लिव्स इन कोलकाता Today he is with us to talk about his first novel Don't Let Him Know. Welcome to the show Sandeep. How are you? Very well. Very glad to be here Pranjali. Thank you so much. So Sandeep, a long ago when I landed in United States in 1998, very much like Ramola Mitra from your book, I was a young Indian woman not sure about the new country, new culture. I was very homesick and yours was one of the very first articles I read in India Currents. <laughs> <laughs> and I became an instant fan. And since then I have been following your voice, your words, your views and now your first novel. So on one hand when you were coming to UC Berkeley I was very excited but I was little apprehensive <laughs> because I had an image of Sandeep but let me tell my audience that Sandeep is not only a great writer but also genuinely nice simple <laughs> down to earth person so Sandeep uh tell us about your book tell me how it feels because uh, now your first novel in print and people are talking about it and you're already getting rave reviews mm-hmm. right and i'm the witness because i'm going from bookstore to bookstore <laughs> <laughs> not getting any copies they are sold out so how does it feel and tell me the truth um it feels a little unreal honestly um you know because i have been writing for a while so Uh, when when the book first when i first got the book deal and it was going to appear there was a moment when it feels very exciting and you can't believe that that's something like this is going to happen then you settle down into sort of the logistics of producing a book you know doing the edits looking at the copy edits and it's like you know there are deadlines to meet and you just sort of progressing along and it and you sort of almost forget that the book is going to actually come out and be oh, a physical okay. thing you're just yes. like you know you're just getting these things in email and you're correcting proofs and sending them back mm-hmm. and filling out forms and questionnaires and uh then sort of the first box of books arrive and then it's suddenly like it's real but it's oh, but even then it's it's real but in a private way it's real to you at home because it's come to your house you know it's but then i think it hits you really when you're at an airport bookstore and you suddenly see your book there maybe mm-hmm. or or you come to a bookstore in uh, california to do a reading and then you um you know you're at a legendary bookstore like city lights in yes, san francisco you were in city, city lights Light. how did and, it go yeah and it, you know it was a packed audience and uh it, people were standing in the stairwell and you and then you suddenly strikes you like you, you know not only do you have a book out it's being you know it's you're doing a reading at a bookstore like city lights in san francisco or probably the most one of the most famous bookstores I in know. the world yes. and then you have to sort of pinch yourself and <laughs> and figure out i mean it's it's actually it's very strange and it's uh, sometimes emotional but it's also lovely because i've i've lived in the bay area for 20 years yes. so it, it's also a wonderful excuse to um reunite with old friends 
Definitely. Even here in Berkeley campus, when you had your reading, people were standing even outside the hall, right? Yeah. So it's a great feeling that people are yeah, just, uh, you know, appreciating. You, you, yeah, and that you're not out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> <laughs> so we are not going to tell the whole story, but in one of the conversations, uh, Amit says to his mother, it's all about following your heart. When he wants to become a chef and he wants to quit engineering, and Sandeep, uh, as far as I know, you were not in journalism schools and were not even planning to be a journalist. You are a software engineer by training, so was it like a well-thought decision to venture in this field, or it was more like Buddha's enlightenment kind <laughs> of experience where in a particular moment you thought, okay, fine, I will go into journalism or I'll go into writing and I'll change paths? Um, it was not a well-thought-out uh, process, as mm -hmm. in... But it wasn't completely impulsive either. I don't think I am a completely impulsive person. You know, I, okay. I, I do hesitate a lot before doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, I'm one of those people who will, like, if even if I'm trying to buy a, a ticket for a flight somewhere, you, you know, I'll spend it. hours researching <laughs> all the websites. And nowadays, all of them will give you actually basically the same prices. Exactly. But yeah. I'll, because they're all sort of running off the same database engine. But I'll still nevertheless, I'll research, you know, the clear trip and make and orbits and travelocity as well as then the airlines websites themselves. And then and, you know, and it'll take me forever. But in terms of uh, career change, it was, uh, you know, I was doing... Uh, Writing on the side because it was something I always enjoyed doing, not because I was thinking that there was any kind of career in it. So I was writing for magazines like India Currents. So and, even when you're working in you that say, company? And, and yeah. the mm -hmm. So I worked in Silicon Valley. You can't yeah. make a living writing for <laughs> India Currents or any other. I know. But uh, so I was working in Silicon Valley and uh, and writing for places like India Currents, sure. sometimes India Abroad and all of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a way of keeping up with it. It was something I enjoyed doing and they gave me the opportunity, the chance to do it. Um, but then through that, I came in contact with an organization called New America Media, which mm -hmm. was like an umbrella organization of all different kinds of ethnic media around the country. So Indian papers, uh, Spanish language television, Chinese newspapers were all under this umbrella organization. Okay. Okay. So Windia Currents was one of the papers there. So that's how I came in contact with them. And at some point, you know, after s several years of working in Silicon Valley, I started realizing that that while I was while it was fine, I was getting my paycheck, and you know, I was making a very comfortable living. There was I had no I couldn't see myself doing it for another five, ten years because I just didn't, it didn't excite me in, in the way. And and it was a difficult time in the Valley to, you know, people, there were so many people around you who were really excited about the work they were doing because they yes. wanted to create the new whatever. Yes. And if you were just not that excited, I mean, for me, it was, obvious that I wasn't that excited because I would not be, you know, in my spare time, I'm not reading journals or Windows programming tips and tricks. Sure. And I'm not, you know, that is, I just yes. would do my work and go home. Mm -hmm. And so then I started thinking about whether I wanted to change jobs or change careers. And uh, when I went and talked to New American Media, the people I knew there, and 
they were willing to take a chance, mm -hmm. um, obviously with a significant pay cut. But uh, so in that sense, it wasn't that I planned very well how to get out of software and get into uh, journalism. But on the other hand, it wasn't that, oh, I had like this Buddha's moment, as you call, and I throw up my software job and just walk out cold, hoping I would get a journalism job. I mean, I did have that job lined up okay, before yes. I actually Ventured turned in my it. resignation hmm. into my software company. So this was a combination. Yes, so that trans transition was kind of smooth, you can say. Yeah, so it wasn't, there wasn't, I, I mean, I, I, of course, worried about whether I was making the right decision and, you know, whether I would be able to support myself on a lower salary and uh, how much freelancing work I would have to do on the side and all of those. But I didn't have that panic moment of, oh, I let go of this hmm. secure software job with nothing else lined up and, you know, next month there might be no paycheck. I didn't have that. And how did radio happen? Because you started writing, you yeah. were in journalism, and then you started radio. So. It happened at the same time. So New America Media was actually hosting, um, they had just started producing a radio show mm -hmm. on KALW, one of the public radio stations in the Bay Area. Um, called New America Now. Actually, mm -hmm. it was called Upfront then. But it was okay. New America Now. It was sort of about, it was a radio show that was about the ki different kinds of ethnic communities, people making news in these ethnic communities, writers, politicians, filmmakers, mm -hmm. issues affecting Indians, Chinese, Latinos in California and things like that. And so um, they used to also have a TV show similar to that before that used to air here. And so once they started, decided to do that, I was actually a guest on the first show that they did. Uh, I was just like a, one of three guests on that show. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, the person who was going to host the show, for various reasons, it didn't work out with him as a host. Okay. And so the woman who was producing the show, um, Holly Kernan, who is now an executive news producer at KQED, uh -huh. she was the producer of the show and she uh, heard me as a guest okay. and thought that, oh, maybe he could work as a host, like we could be trained him wow. as a host. So, so you went there as a guest? Yes, I went there as a guest and I didn't, and I stayed on as a host. Now so I'm then feeling she already insecure. Huh? <laughs> 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 oh, and that's how it all started. Yes. And then you never look back because your podcasts and your... Yeah, then, videos. you know, then one thing leads to another and, and all of that. But yeah, so it's, a lot of it has been uh, really serendipitous chance encounters hmm. you know it wasn't like there was no plan to ever get into journalism and there was certainly no plan to get into radio but the opportunity came up and I was lucky that it I happened to be at that position at a point at that time I mean I could just as easily have not been a guest on that first show sure. and I Holly would never have encountered me and someone else would have hosted the show but it was meant to be and how about the book was it planned or all these articles you were writing and the anthologies, they led to shaping of a big story or you yeah, had a plan of a book? Both, I think. Uh, I mean, a lot of the material that went into the book probably came out of that, my experiences here. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing, 
you know, I wasn't writing about those things with the plan of creating a book out of them. I had this vague idea that one day I might want to write a book. <laughs> but I wasn't really shaping it towards a book. The book came out about in a different way. I I had actually written some of the vignettes as sort of standalone stories almost, mm -hmm. which had been published in various anthologies here and there. Oh. And at one point, I realized that these uh, things that I thought were standalone stories, mm -hmm. somebody pointed that out to me, were actually, they were actually about the same people. I was actually writing about oh. the same people in different points in their life, even though in the vignettes I had given them different names. It was not intentional. It was not intentional. Of, yes. And so once that happened, mm -hmm. I went back and I started looking at these vignettes again, sort of with a fresh eye, trying to figure out, um, you know, with the idea that, oh, they're not standalone thing, but they're like pieces for, of a larger jigsaw puzzle. Hmm. And then the book started taking shape with each, it was like a book told in stories where each chapter was almost like a standalone story, mm -hmm. but but they would all add up to a larger book. And, uh, and even then, finally, the book happened quite serendipitously as well, in the same way as everything else has happened, uh, where uh, I, I was not, had not actually sought out any publishers, but uh, Bloomsbury in India, the publisher there, uh, mm -hmm. um, she had read something else I had written in a, diff a different story mm -hmm. and liked it. And she, on her own, just sort of out of the blue, called me. Wow. And okay. it was someone I knew her socially. <laughs> and, uh, and she told me later that she was actually very nervous when she called because she was afraid, what if I had something and what if she really hated it? And then, you know, okay. when you know somebody, <laughs> you ask for it and then you're like, oh, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, but she asked if, if if I had something and I said, well, I have this thing I've been working on. And so she asked to read it <laughs> and I sent her the first three chapters. She really liked it. And before I knew it, there was a book. Wow. And I always wondered about the process, though. Uh, like when you're writing a novel, uh, do you have a definite plan, like a beginning, a middle, an end where you're putting the dots together or it's more like a process where it unfolds itself to you and then with the same spontaneity you put it and present it to us like, because it's a novel right it's not yeah. just a story in in a way um this one is a little different because it is a novel but each chapter in it is like a standalone St story, story. Mm -hmm. so uh, so in, in that sense i didn't have to uh architect it hmm. the way another novel like a full-fledged seamless novel would be and and I had thought about whether I needed to take this break this structure down and make it a regular novel as it were like a normal novel mm -hmm. but then I didn't like that I, I I kind of liked the standalone story idea a novel and stories idea so I kept it that way mm -hmm. but so so in that sense um I didn't you know have that kind of uh, process that you're talking about, um, but I did have it for individual chapters in the book where I had a very clear idea. I'm, I'm, I'm. I often need to know 
what my and this is not just about writing fiction it's also in non-fiction op-eds and anything it's very difficult for me to start writing unless i clearly have a first sentence in you're mind you're an engineer yes i'm an I engineer think, and yeah. I, yes it's like that <laughs> i need to know the beginning and i need to know the last sentence Oh. It's almost like the output. And then in the course of writing it, all of that might change. Yeah, that's what I was going yes. to ask. So that so might not stay. Keep it fixed. Or, no, no, it'll, no. It'll, it might change. Definitely. But, but I need to have those in place <laughs> and then I can write the rest of the. Otherwise, it's very difficult for me to actually s- hmm. proceed with the writing. But yeah, that's probably part of the that's engineering. engineering in you, yes. <laughs> so I'm reading the book right now and... I think we can very easily call it a book of secrets, right? Yes. And not just one secret, but secrets like some very dark and traumatic ones and some very delicious and simple ones like eating a burger in McDonald's. So could you please shed some light on uh, the book, like not the whole book, but is it about one secret or should we expect a lot of family secrets and the drama it is a book about family secrets it's a book about but you know initially it's a book about family <laughs> it's a book about uh, one family and a s- couple of generations of that family <laughs> it follows their lives through their youth yeah to older age it follows them from India to United States and then back again. Yes. And uh, in this sort of, and in a way, it's, it is on the surface, a perfectly ordinary, happy, well-adjusted family, father, mother, son, yes. everyone. They seem to be, you know, they're together. They do all the proper things. And But what I wanted to show was that behind that veneer or facade of that happy family, mm-hmm. There are deep secrets between them, which they are unable to share with each other, sometimes because sometimes because they're afraid that if that secret is revealed, that, yeah. oh, that whole structure of the happy family, the normal family, will break down and fall yeah. apart. And sometimes they don't reveal it, not because it would endanger the family, but because it's, it just feels better to have it as a secret for yes. yourself. You know, it's, a, it's like a secret pleasure exactly. that you don't want to share with everyone like a like a child with a sweet that they you know we, we, the child wants to go away to the roof and eat the whatever little sweet that she's found mm-hmm. and not really share it and so some secrets are like that and in the course i mean these secrets as you said say secrets are but in the end the secrets often are all about breaking some kind of rules whether it is about breaking rules about what it means to be normal, about yes. breaking rules around sexuality, mm-hmm. or breaking rules around, you know, how a good widow is supposed to behave and what she eats or doesn't eat. Mm. Um, breaking rules about breaking your parents' rules, the rules that your parents set down about dating or meeting, you know, a woman, meeting mm-hmm. men. So it's all about those those rules that are being broken. And, you know, as you know, we are a culture, we're a very rule-bound culture. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. And so that means the temptation to break those rules are also that much higher. higher. Yes. And so people, and, and because I set it in India and America, I also want to wanted to look at the role 
that those two places hmm. played in these characters' lives in terms of their expectations from life. So how did coming to America change these characters? You know, sure. what are they like when they went back? And, you know, how do they fit? Because the, these are things I think that all of us who've come here as Definitely, immigrants and yes. go back have tussled with mm -hmm. at some point or the other. I mean, I just the other day I was talking to a young woman here who'd come, who'd been here three or four years. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I don't think I've changed at all since I've come. And I'm like, well, wait till you go back. Exactly, and then you'll yes. understand. And then you know. And then you'll know. <laughs> and the secrets, I think, they're more like between you and your readers because even the characters, they're kind of not revealing. And so yeah, it, so there are little... It becomes a story between us. us. Yes, and so the idea which I liked the idea that that as a reader, mm -hmm. you might be privy to more of the character's secrets yeah. than the characters around the character themselves. You know, so, 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 so my character, Amit, might think that he has discovered a secret about mm -hmm. his mother, Romola. Yeah. But the secret's not exactly what he thinks he's discovered. <laughs> yes. And you as the reader hmm. know that. Yeah. And that colors the way you read the book. So, so in another chapter his mother Romola might say something quite simple yeah. or common, commonplace. Mm -hmm. But you, as the reader, will get an extra shade yes. from what she says because you know that you know the secret that she knows about yes. and you know how that might be coloring this particular conversation that she's having. So I like that idea of playing with it because also I th think culturally... We are a culture, you know, we're a very emotional culture, perhaps. Yes, very emotional. But at the same time, we're not always a very confrontational culture, hmm. you know. So hmm. we, we tend to, um, people would say we're passive aggressive yeah, at some yeah. way. We, you know, we, because we're very much all about doing the done thing. Yes. You know, you keeping up appearances, doing the done thing, doing the right thing, doing the proper thing. Mm -hmm. And even if that is something we don't agree with or it makes us unhappy, we, we go it. along with it because yeah. people expect us to do it. And so in a lot of these, my characters, I feel, are all flawed as they are, are all basically good people. Mm -hmm. And they're all trying to do the done thing. They're all trying to do the right thing vis-a-vis -vis each other. Yes. Though in the pro but but in the process sometimes they are as we said earlier not listening to their own desire. And I'm not actually and I'm not at all advocating that the right thing is to listen to your own desire sure. and go. It is it's a balancing act and and what I did to do in the book was show these characters who were like perpetually trying to balance this conflict between duty and desire. Desire. Right. And what I really liked was, uh, it was like you were telling a story and I was reading it. It was not like something is happening in the book, mm. but I was part of it. And that really ah, thank you. touched me. And then one thing I could very closely relate to was when Amit returns to India for his uh, father's last rites. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I remember one summer I was in India spending time with my dad. And next visit, I go there, and he is just a picture on the wall. Mm. And I could relate to that particular incident. So this is one big apprehension as an immigrant we all have. So did you have similar experiences? Yeah, that one, that little bit came directly out of my own experience. Oh, really? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, you know which is by no means as you say it's it's a common apprehension that we all have and it's yes, by no yes. means an unusual experience yes. for us uh, in fact more often than not uh we lose loved ones while we are here, here because yes. they usually you know unless someone has having a long illness or something mm-hmm. no you know they don't give you notice that it's their time prepared. is up and then and even if someone is having a long illness you go back and forth but it doesn't still doesn't mean that you were going to be there at the moment yes. when when somebody dies mm-hmm. you know you keep coming back and uh, hoping they'll be around and uh, you know and the, and this is a fact of immigration that every time you went back there were less people there yes. was somebody who was gone uncle neighbor yeah. and aunt grandmother whatever but obviously in this case you know parent is a very different i yes. mean is a very different category altogether sure. and uh, and i was i was an engineer in silicon valley when my father uh, passed away and uh, he'd been having some health problems for a while and uh, i had actually booked a ticket Mm-hmm. to go eventually to oh, go but okay. but before it could go he died and uh, you know and i and it was literally that same thing you make that very long journey back yeah. and uh, the whole the, distance, distance the timing, timing. Yeah, it never, takes you to hmm. and so in fact in that case i mean it was literally what happened because um my sister who is in india and i we, we talked and i we decided that we would rather just cremate him than keep him there for 3 days while i tried to get a ticket back and then it would take another 2 days to go from california yes. to calcutta and uh, you know we didn't want him we didn't want to have him there and my nephew and niece were little at that time and mm-hmm. so so it just sort of logically made sense and in fact that chapter is called the practical thing to do yes and it was the practical thing to do but it also meant that whole unreal feeling of walking yeah. into a house that you're very familiar with um that you've grown up all your life and a very familiar figure is not, not there, there there anymore and uh, this had often i mean this is a common immigrant experience and i think it is one of the biggest prices that we, we all have to pay, pay, pay for yes. immigration and there's no really there's no way around it um i mean i i've i've had friends whose parents have come to visit them in america and then something's happened here exactly. and and yeah, they, yeah. and then you know and then they feel stricken because they feel like oh then came you know that that perhaps it would have been better if they had come in sur- surroundings they were more familiar with rather than sort of america where they didn't really know yeah. anyway so, so this is this way that way there is there's nothing, <laughs> nothing really we can, can do about it but it is it's it's a part that i mean i mean it is a thing that remains etched in your memory and uh, yeah and then uh, you have very beautifully touched the issue of caste system right we all grew up surrounded with people who were helping us with household things and they were very closely attached we were attached to them they were attached to us but we cannot still say that they were part of the family even though right? we pretend all the and time and we all the time pretended that right so yeah no that i wanted to i'm glad you brought that up because uh, many of the reviews have kind like i mean they 
because they go into talking about the issues around marriage or homosexuality or stuff which are covered in the book. Um, so they don't mention the, and I'll say the word, servants. Servants, issue, yes. Because it, they were servants. I mean, we pretend now that they were yes. domestic help or things, but they were basically cooks and maids yes. and servants and how, uh, and doing all kinds doing of doing chores all, all kinds of meal chores for us. And mm -hmm. many of them were young and underage and they were, you know, an old servant's granddaughter who comes from the village is looking for a job in the city. And it's not that families treated them badly necessarily. Yeah. You treat them well, but... And what I wanted to do in... in and you see the, the characters of the servants in the book sometimes over the course of time. Mm -hmm. You, you yeah. see them at different points in the book. Um, what I wanted to show was, yes, they're immensely, integrally the, a part of the family. As in, they are in a book about family secrets. Who knows secrets better than the, the servants yes, in the yes. house? So they know these things. And it gives them a certain power in mm -hmm. the family as well, you know, in the family dynamics, because Definitely. they've been there for a long time. Yes. And so they can. But when push comes to shove, there's no doubting mm -hmm. as to who is the boss in the relationship. Yes. And so you'll see in the course, but it is also true that sometimes for young children growing up, they are the closest playmates yes. that they might have. Yes. They might even be people through whom you discover, you know, sexual experimentation games and stuff. This is commonplace yeah, that has yeah. happened. Because we all these had bolas and mangalas. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in this thing, you, you see the characters... You know, both relate to the servants as friends, confidants, hmm. playmates, and and things. But at the, but you also see how quickly, and how cruelly, even children realize the power that they have vis-a-vis -vis somebody who works in their house. Yes, and it's a harsh truth, yes, right? And it's, it's absolutely there. a harsh truth. Yeah. And it's also been an, it's sort of an embarrassed... I mean, I think when I came to the United States, um, those were like the two sort of almost embarrassing things about being uh, coming from India that people would bring up. Mm -hmm. One was about, oh, arranged marriage. They would, everyone <laughs> would constantly ask you, like, oh, what, how is it yes. possible? How did your parents have yeah. an arranged marriage? And really, do they still have arranged marriage? Yeah. And then they would ask you, like, oh, you have servants. And... Yeah. and and, you know, he, it was not a big deal in any, you know, you didn't have to be a Maharaja or somebody to yeah. have servants. You, every middle class family had some kind of uh, domestic help uh, working there. But uh, it was something that you felt like you constantly had to explain. And, and that's where you come up with the euphemisms of, you know, they were like part of the family. family they were like yeah. this. We were, you know, helping their education, children's education. And all of it's true. Yes. But it doesn't exclude the fact. And I think that's an issue still. It remains as as when that Indian consular officer, Devyani Khobragade, got into trouble, trouble yes. because of her domestic help and how much she was paying or not paying the domestic help. And without going into the rights and wrongs of, of that case, which became a huge deal in India. Biggest controversy, uh, was, yeah. It's also worth remembering, you know, at one point you would hear her statements and, and think like, you know... You, just you just you actually there is no right yeah. to have a maid yes. you know so when she when she was saying well you know you're not paid enough to pay a maid the sort of salaries that the rule demands 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in this country, really, there is no right to have a maid just because you're a, you know, highly placed consular officer does not, you might be convenient to have a maid, but, but it it's not your right. right. Yes. So, Sandeep, when I was a little girl, my dad used to read to me for hours. And the reading would be from a diverse array of both Indian and Western writers in English, Hindi or Marathi. And he would just read to me even I was very young and I could not possibly understand mm. what was going on. But later on, as I grew up, I realized that all those moments became part of me and uh, those words were kind of hiding inside me and slowly they made way to my heart. So do you have any such influence growing up from family or any favorite author or writers? Yeah, uh, well, (laughs) I mean, you and I, we all grew up at a time when books were the books. only thing yes. you had no there was, there was, TV, there was no, no real internet. tv no no internet at all no facebook yeah. yeah no so so the distractions were hmm. very different yeah and so it was actually i remember it was very exciting whenever my father would stop by uh the library on his way back from office and he would only do it on saturdays because he had saturday was his half day and so he could get to go to the children's library um, yes. early before it closed. Yeah. And then he would bring back, I think that we were allowed to bring three books at a time. Yes. And he would bring back three books to uh-huh. read. And so it was actually an event and it would be exciting. Definitely. And we were always afraid he, my father was kind of forgetful and that he would bring books you'd already read. And I remember clearly also... Uh, this uh, gentleman next door, our neighbor, mm-hmm. who really loved books and loved children who who liked books. Mm-hmm. And he had a friend who had like many, many books in his house. And I'd never been to that house. But every time this, our neighbor, he actually had a list. And, yes. and we would write down the names of books we wanted to read. And he would go to this house and see which ones they had. Mm-hmm. And he would bring them back in his in his cloth bag on his shoulder. And, uh, you know, we would read them and, and the return. That would be thing. the most. I would yeah. get up early in the morning. Yes. Uh, if I woke up before my sister, I would, you know, I'm not allowed to disturb anybody. So I would uh, climb up onto the windowsill <laughs> behind the curtains yeah. and read a book. I mean, yes. you read books because uh, that was the thing. You know, that was that was a fun thing to do. Yeah, and you read your books, your neighbor's books, books, their and friends. friends. You read your father and then you started reading books you were not supposed to read. Exactly. And, you know, like you were sneaking into your uncle's library, sure. your father's library and read books and you couldn't understand always what they meant. But um, so, but I did come from, I mean, my sister is, uh, I dedicate the book in part to my sister, in fact, who actually, she's a bit older than me, but she was the one who really inculcated a love of books in me and a love of reading because um, she went on to study English literature and but all along you know she sort of guided my reading as it were you know like oh now you're reading your Enid Blyton's and uh, there was a very favorite Bengali writer in Shuigen Ghosh I think okay. who I used to read and then <clears throat> you know then he would read the adventures and uh, mystery stories and you know then she, at one point she would decide okay now you're old enough to read your Agatha Christie oh, or Alistair okay. MacLean whatever and also, I mean, the the books available were also limited. Hmm. You couldn't get all yeah. kinds of books in India Definitely. at that time. So it was a certain limited pool of books that you were reading from. 
and uh, especially English books. You know, Bengali books you could get, all, yeah. obviously. And buying a <clears> book <throat> was a luxury. Luxury. I mean, when yeah. the Calcutta Book Fair happened every uh, year, it was like an enormous deal. I mean, yes. we would save up money all year Definitely. to go to the Calcutta Book Fair. Now the book fair still happens and it's as large as ever. But I go, but I don't, you know, but now all these books are also available online or whatever. So I don't necessarily... Some of that joy of discovery, of going to a book fair and sort of browsing around and hmm. stumbling upon these books and like coming back with bags laden yes. with books, some of that has obviously gone. Definitely. And talking about books and authors, uh, what I like about your articles and about your book, the simplicity of words, you're like a storyteller. We don't have to rely on the words, but it's more like it comes mm. to us. And that's the style I find in Ruskin Bond stories. Mm. And I was you know Ruskin very... Bond launched my book? Exactly. That's what I was going to go. So I was very pleasantly surprised that he launched your book. Yeah. Tell us about that event. How did that happen? No, it, it had nothing to do with me. But uh, uh, so my book launched in Calcutta at the Kolkata Literary Meet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I was supposed to. And Ruskin Bond is a great favorite of mine. And yes. I think the, for a, and, and I think the amazing thing about Ruskin Bond is that not only have like people my generation read it, people in generation before me have read their Ruskin Bonds yes. and people are still reading Ruskin Bond. And Vishal Bhardwaj and all these people are We're making, making movies, movies out on of his, Ruskin yes, Bond. So yes. he, he's, like a, he's like a writer who has remained sort of contemporary sure. over... I mean, he's like 80 years old now, probably. But he's sort of remained contemporary with... The, and, and, I, and it was exactly what you said. I liked always the simplicity of his language and yes. the way he could evoke hmm. a scene or whatever, but with very, with a very light touch. Yes. And um, so, in fact, when, when we were looking for people to send the book to for blurbs, mm -hmm. um, I remember asking my Indian publisher, like, what about sending it to Ruskin Bond? Okay. And she said, uh, you know, he's, do you know him personally? I said, I, I don't know him at all, but I just like his books and I think maybe he'd, he'd like the book and she, she and they were like yeah we can send it but you know he doesn't really give blurbs very much because he's much older now as well I mean if you had known him personally we could have tried so we didn't actually try to get a blurb out of him so it was a very pleasant surprise when he happened to be coming to the Kolkata Literary Meet and the woman organizing the meet asked him if you know, and I was going to moderate, actually, I was going to moderate a session on ghost stories yes. with Ruskin Bond. Yes, and, and so I saw the whole the thing, thing on YouTube. YouTube. As I said, <laughs> I'm a big fan and I follow whatever you do. <laughs> so then, uh, you know, so then she asked if yeah. he would launch the book and he was very gracious. And he said, of course, he would be happy to launch the yeah, book. He so seemed I was very a, happy and he's he very active. I know, and he's, a very, he's very sharp. Articulate and yeah. Absolutely. And that whole talk was really pleasant, very nice. Ruskin Bond was very happy and we all are very happy. But I would like to ask you, how did your mom react? <laughs> what was her reaction? Because, see, I think behind every story, there is a mom. Right? <laughs> because you're here because of your mom. So what was her expression? Like, how is she dealing with all this fame and the book? She, and <laughs> She doesn't really have to deal with the, any of it. Um <laughs> No, uh, she was obviously very, very excited when the news came mm -hmm. out. And uh, 
she said, um, you know, and so she was like, like a good Indian mother dying to tell her cousins okay, about okay. it. And yes. I had to, initially I had embargoed the news. I had told them, because, no, no, until I signed the contract. Okay, you, okay. you can't tell anybody. And she and wanted so, to tell all the uncles and, and aunts. And 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 <laughs> but uh, so eventually when I lifted the embargo, <laughs> she was like, okay, now she was like happy to tell everyone. Um, she's read the book and uh, she came to my book launch in Kolkata, <laughs> um, which was a big deal for me because she doesn't go out very much because of health problems right now. But she, this was one thing she sort of made an effort for and came. Great. And, uh, and she really enjoyed the session. And then later on, uh, she told me that after sort of listening to me talk about the book <laughs> at the session, she was going to go back and read the book again. Oh, so, okay. So Ma was very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so here, uh, I would really like you to read any of your favorite paragraphs from the book or a few lines sure, for our listeners, sure. would you please? Or maybe I'll read a little bit from the great-grandmother. Yes, she's my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> so in this um, uh, section, Amit who is one of my characters, mm -hmm. is uh, he's often left alone with his great-grandmother in the house. And uh, the characters are modeled a little bit after my own great-grandmother. Um, so, okay. So Amit tried to tell his mother that great-grandmother's bed was his favorite place in the house, but she just shushed him. Great-grandmother allowed him to arrange her pillows into mountains and oceans, which he would then defend against run-of-the-mill pirates and fantastic demons with heads of buffaloes and tongues of fire. And she would sit there playing endless games of patience while spinning her stories full of gods and monsters. That was why Omit loved the third Thursday of every month. That was when his mother went to visit her best friend across town. His grandmother went to her lady circle monthly meeting, Thursdays were Omit's day off from school. Romola would deposit him in great-grandmother's room and say, now you two look after each other and don't get into any mischief. That was meant as much for great-grandmother as it was for Omit. I will just tell him stories about gods and goddesses, said great-grandmother meekly. Tell me, my little darling, what does the goddess Durga ride? A lion. Very good. Now draw your old Boroma a picture of the goddess Durga. Scarcely had Romola left than the house... Normal as Amit's mother. <laughs> then the house erupted into frenzied activity. The coal stove had to be fired up, vegetables cut, fruits chopped. This is the end, grumbled old Mongolada maid as she poked at the coals. If Boma finds out this time, I'll lose my job for, t for sure. We'll fry our own aubergines today, said great-grandmother gleefully, and make some mango chutney. Amit helped her stir the batter while Mongola sliced the aubergines. He watched great-grandmother supervise the mango chutney, the bubbly golden orange syrup like thick winter afternoon sunshine with a hint of roasted red chili. The fat slices of mango floating in it all poured into round-bellied glass jars with glass lids. She would let him help her pour and then he'd lick his fingers and taste the sweet sunny syrup. Sometimes little red ants would drown in the syrup. Don't worry, great-grandmother would reassure him. If you eat the chutney with the dead ants in it, you'll learn to swim. <laughs> Amit's father said that made no sense because the ants had drowned. 
but great-grandmother paid him no attention. Great-grandmother would stash most of the mango chutney somewhere in her room. So if I wake up in the middle of the night and want some, I'll have it right there. Now don't tell your mother. She'll say mango chutney is not good for you in the middle of the night. Then she would add with unassailable logic. What does she know? Your mother was not even born when I started making pickles and chutneys. <laughs> Wonderful. That's so the thing about the red ants actually comes out of things people would tell me because we used to have red ants all the time who had drowned in the in the syrup. And I think because kids would be fussy, they would say, no, no, eat it. You'll learn it's to swim. It's fine, yeah. <laughs> and mango chutney has to be there. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you read uh, all the books about uh, immigrants and especially based on Indian immigrants, we have certain points on that <laughs> list. So... Did you notice you have <laughs> yes, <laughs> all I, I the points it is Because somebody had actually made a list of uh, 17 things that uh, South Asian diasporan books have. It was a very funny piece uh, in a website called Publishing Perspectives. <laughs> and uh, when I was went through the list, I'm like, oh, I think I have 15 of those 17 <laughs> things in there. But, you know, plus the mango. I think that list didn't actually include mangoes, chutneys. Oh. But my, as a bonus, I have mango in my that book too. That should be the first thing. <laughs> that should be the first thing. Because, but, I mean, there's, you know, things about yeah. like multi-generational families. Yes, um, yes. Mar arranged marriage. And, and, but all of those are also, I mean, the reason they are there is also, also very much part of our experiences. Exactly. It's like, so it's not a conscious effort to put them in your book. Well, we grew up like that. That's the we part grew of up our in life. Our, yeah, right? we grew yeah. up with arranged marriages and things and around us. So, so, you know, we're great-grandmothers yeah. and great-grandmothers' stories. And, you know, every immigrant, every immig Indian immigrant I've met here without fail at some point or the other, when asked, what do you miss about India? We'll say mangoes. Mangoes. Mangoes, mangoes, mangoes <laughs> you know. And, uh, and then they'll get into an argument about, you know, whether the Alfonso is better than the Langra is better than the Himshagar or whatever and they have these big mango arguments. But so these are like very much uh, our part of our lives and facts of our lives. So it's, it's, it would be an equally conscious, very con self-conscious decision to not address any of them yes. in a book which has characters who are immigrants. Yeah, it's very natural for us to bring those things. So friends, we have with us today Sandeep Roy, journalist, commentator, blogger and author to talk about his debut novel, Don't Let Him Know. The story revolves around the lives of Indian immigrants living in the United States and who better than Sandeep Roy to tell us the story. He was born in India, spent years in San Francisco and recently returned to live in Kolkata. We are talking to Roy about secrets, both fictional and real, family, sexuality, and his journey back to his country of birth. So that brings me to India, Sandeep. Yes. After 20 years of staying in San Francisco, you are back to India. And I know the part when you come from India and you're mm. trying to settle down here, it's very difficult. But I don't know the other part when you are going from here to there. Is it a satisfying experience? Is it stressful? Are there struggles? How would you put it? All of the above. Okay. Um, it is, I mean, it is a reverse culture shock. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, you go back, I mean, even as uh, an immigrant, you come here, but then you go back regularly. So, but then you're going back as vacation, on a vacation. Yeah. And so you always have an end date in mind, mm -hmm. you know, you, so it's always, you know, you meet relatives, you eat, eat here and you sort of trot, 
try to pack in as much as you can on the trip. You do yes. your shopping, meeting people, <laughs> eating, and then you come back. Yeah. And it is very different to go without an end date in sight. You know, to basically take buy this one way ticket, and then and figure it out. The wonderful thing about it is, um, years ago, my mother, in fact, had said that, you know. I would look forward to when I was living in the U.S. She would say I would look forward to when you were coming when I would when you'd call and say okay I think I'm going to come in November or something. Yes. And she would say would look forward to it very much. But then <coughs> she said whether I was coming for two weeks or three weeks or one month mm -hmm. or ten days. She said the day you arrive mm -hmm. becomes like a countdown towards uh, a departure. Uh, yes. Um, and it, that, yeah. and uh, and it's very different to go somewhere without that countdown in place. Hmm. You know, where you're there, and you may not. It doesn't mean you'll be there forever, but it it just means that that nobody is counting down, saying like, "Oh, you have two more weeks. You have three more weeks left in in your trip," and it allows you, in a way, to settle down without worrying about losing a day because, oh, I got sick. So, you know, so I couldn't... <laughs> My mother used to have a list of uh, things to cook. Oh, okay, okay. You know, like, during your stay. During my stay. And then, and then if you got sick for two days or something, then that whole <laughs> list was thrown out of uh, order yeah. because then she would have to decide, okay, not that. You know, we'll maybe, maybe we'll make this. And now that list doesn't really have to exist because it'll be, things will just be made whenever they're made. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's a more relaxed thing. But on the other hand, of course, it is stressful. I mean, living 20 years here does change you. Your expectations change. Uh, the way you relate to people change. Your expectations about sort of privacy change. You know, suddenly you are both much more dependent on other people mm. and as well as you have to be very much more conscious about what other people say, think, yes. and, you know, you have to, you, you're not, you don't necessarily feel quite the master of your own destiny the way you are here, where you can come and go as you please. Pretty much you're in control. You're right? in control. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even a simple thing like uh, deciding that, oh, tonight I'm out, I'll just grab something to eat and go home and not bother about dinner which is a very natural thing yes. here becomes can become an issue in yes. India because you know because that means that somebody's made dinner for you yes and you're not going to have it then what is going to happen you know all of those little things become suddenly become much bigger in India yeah. and all of that takes a lot of adjusting again yeah and on the other hand I would uh, like to know like as a gay man yourself uh, do you see the change or progress because living in San Francisco for 20 years it's altogether a different story right mm. but for four years last four years you have been in India so what do you think was it difficult to adjust or do you think times have changed and people um, have progressed times have definitely changed I mean in terms of issues like uh, gay rights and stuff. Mm -hmm. There is much more conversation and visibility about that in the media than, say, People 15, 20 about, about it. it. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. newspapers will routinely talk about the issue. Mm -hmm. And especially now that the law, the Section 377 of the Penal Code is being mm -hmm. 
was challenged in court and the courts were deciding so that gave more impetus for a conversation to be had in media so it's a it's definitely not a taboo topic in the sense in the way it used to be so there are you know panel discussions on ndtv or like major yes. television platforms about the topic and it's not just uh gay people themselves speaking up but parents of gay people are uh, come up on television and t- yeah, t- talk about the story unfortunate decision by the court ruling right about the lgbt movement so people were there and yeah and there was participating in the pro- i mean what was more interesting than the decision was the reaction to the decision yes. and how uh, across the like other than some smaller sort of like the very religious groups that uh-huh. uh, which was funny also because you know suddenly the hindu religious groups and the very catholic church and the muslim uh, religious yes. group which normally never agree on anything were suddenly, suddenly united agreed, suddenly yeah. united on yes. this issue yes. but but apart from that hmm. there was like a huge wide range of people um who were protesting and it wasn't just gay or lesbian people who were protesting yes. there were actually a lot of other allies young people parents yes. uh you know film film actors all came out in protest so so to me it sort of showed that in a way the whole issue was like toothpaste out of a tube mm. and so that even though the court reversed that decision yes. and and recognized it it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to push the toothpaste back into the tube again it's out in the it's out it's out and what do you think avinash your character uh, he's facing altogether a different era so do you think if he goes to india now in this uh, era uh, under this circumstances have things changed uh, and yeah. would it be easier for him would it have been easier for him yes and no i mean i think for a c- character of avinash's age it would be actually uh it would be a bitter sweet thing he would actually be able to witness the change he would be able to see an india where there were gay groups mm-hmm. he would see an india where there were lgbt pride parades happening in not just in big cities like bombay and kolkata and delhi mm-hmm. but recently in jaipur oh, okay. um you know in ahmedabad hmm. in surat yeah. um yes. there he would see these pride parades happening he would see gay parties happening uh, you know through the internet people would be organizing these parties he would see uh, books coming out talking about these issues and he would but it would be bittersweet because he would probably feel as an older man that he would probably wish that he had access to you know even some of these resources when he was coming of age yeah so it's not the circumstances but his own age his, but he, but yeah. he he's he, he is yeah. now of a generation mm. that you know he like his life might have turned out to be very different had a lot of these things been available to him mm. at the time that he was dealing and struck tussling with his sexuality definitely and uh, the other day we were talking about uh, hindi movies right yes. and i remember talking to you about the movie dostana so when you see all this false depictions and stereotypical homosexual movies what do you think like i mean i think well two things one is that i think there is something to be said about visibility in general mm. uh, you know and and 
many movies will poke fun at many things. Yes. And I think it's perfectly fun, fine to poke fun at gay issues. And, and people have done it for, for a long time. So I don't, and I actually don't have a huge problems with a film like Dostana because I feel like it it's set up as a silly, comedic you movie. You think of it as a Bollywood movie, as and a then Bollywood movie, about and it's like yeah. set up to be campy and mm-hmm. and funny and not to be real. The problem is often I actually had a bigger problem when Karan Johar made a short film. That was part of that uh, four films for Bollywood's 100 years, yes. um, where he actually mo- most seriously tackled the issue of homosexuality. And there I found the character, I personally found the character of the gay man in there so unbelievable. And it, it, the movie made a big deal because it had a male kiss on screen. Hmm. But I found the character to be so unbelievable and so like it didn't the logic it was beyond my logic and comprehension that i was more upset by that than dostana because dostana i could just dismiss At as least being they were not mm, trying to give a message. message whereas this i felt was actually trying to seriously take on the issue mm-hmm. and in the process creating this very bizarre almost schizophrenic type character who had been abused by his father when he was young but but then seemed to think not seem to at least not be bothered by the fact that he was hitting on his own close friend's husband for no good reason it seemed and then mm. would come and make a scene at this person's office um this the conversations he would have as a person working in an office none of it like worked for me and so i was m- sort of more upset by that um but i think you know, it's come to it. I mean, but we've come a long way from those. Look, gays are a minority in India the same way Parsis are a minority and the same way, you know, Sikhs, Sikhs. are a minority. Mm-hmm. And as as a minority, you've, films have always made fun of you. I mean, mm. the Parsi in, in a traditional Bollywood film or for that matter a Bengali in a traditional Bollywood film is also shown in that same kind of crude caricature yeah, right. and, 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 and brush stroke. So, you know, it's it's par for the course that you will become caricatures. The the only issue is is that where it stays. Mm. Uh, and say so in a Parsi's case, you know, there have actually been more sensitive films made, made about yes, Parsis, yes. you know, films with people like Shabana, with people like Goma yeah. Nirani and all, hmm. have made other films. So so then you have different kinds of representation so that the only thing that's there is not the comic caricature. That's when it becomes a problem. Definitely. And Sandeep, I cannot let you go before asking you about the recent elections. Anyone coming from India, that's the topic I want to talk to them. <laughs> huge drama and all these trend-setting events and Modi Lahar and then Delhi elections, Kejriwal and all that. Tell me your views. What do you think about the Indian voters and the political scenario in India? Well, one thing is that the Indian voter can upset all poll- pollsters. <laughs> or rather, I don't know what the election says about the pollsters that we rely on, on or the yes. way we do polling in India. Mm. Because it's... I mean, it has happened over and over again, whether election results have proved the pollsters completely wrong. It happened with the Congress UPA's victories, which people didn't expect the BJP-led NDA government to lose at that time. And now, definitely, with uh, Arvind Kejriwal's 
in in Delhi in the last elections. Nobody expected that kind of magnitude of victory. Yes. I uh, I covered the the Lok Sabha elections. Uh-huh. I was out, um, and so I was in Varanasi when um, Modi and uh, Kejriwal were battling oh, it out okay, okay. for that. And before that, I had gone. That through, was the biggest battle. That of was the times. big battle. Yes. And. Uh, you know, it, it was a very exciting election. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an exciting election because uh, irrespective of what you think about Narendra Modi's politics, mm-hmm. um, he changed the game. Um, he made it, unlike other elections in India, he made it about himself. That's and true. people kept said, saying it was like an American presidential style election. Definitely. And he definitely projected a certain image of himself. It was much more about himself than it was even about his party, hmm. which was unusual in an Indian context. So it was an exciting election to see the there was a lot of energy in that election. And yes. uh, whether it was not just from the Modi's. Modi supporters, hmm. but in general, there was just a feeling that this was an election that would change. People India. had hopes. They were very people had a lot of, and, and so it, there were a lot of people who there were a lot of people who voted for Narendra Modi because they, um, you know, because they thought he was going to bring in a more sort of Hindu majoritarian hmm. R- hmm. Country, hmm. rule. And then there were a lot of people who voted for Narendra Modi because they thought that he would actually be all about development and yeah. the economy, and that he would, in fact hold the the right wing of his party in check because he wanted to get rid of corruption and all of that. They wanted uh, a strong leader. They wanted a strong leader and it showed, uh, and in many ways, it, when you listen to what people would say about Narendra Modi and why they wanted him, the irony was that the closest other leader that came to mind in that was actually Indira Gandhi. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's, a, there's a high correlation between people who were voting for Narendra Modi and who, if they were asked, you know, who was the best prime minister India had or, and things like that. Because they, it, it is, there is this idea that India is such a huge, unwieldy democracy that you need a strong leader to sort of hold it together and whip it into shape and get the bureaucrats working and, you know, clean out the inefficiencies in, in the bureaucracy and in the system. And so there's a lot of hope riding on Modi. But the problem with Narendra Modi is that he has come, he has built up that hope in hmm. such to such an extent that now he's struggling with keeping up I mean, it's not been that long since he's yeah. been prime minister, but already it's still people too will early to say, say but, but already people are saying like, oh, nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not do- happening. That is not happening. And that's partly because he has built up or allowed the hype around him to be built up yes. to that level that now he has to live up to that hype. And that's, you know, that and you ca- and you can't do that by just wearing a pinstriped suit with your name written on Modi, it. Modi, <laughs> Modi. Yeah, and it's it's a difficult country to rule, though. That uh, obviously it's a very and so and yeah, and so and he has come in. I mean, I think the big thing about him also the attraction for many people was that he presented himself as an outsider to mm-hmm. Delhi, the Delhi politics as usual. Yeah. Um, which is fine, except. It's not necessarily that easy to rule as an outsider because, you know, because you still have to rule the system that that exists. And so it's always a big balancing act for a leader to be not be sucked in and absorbed by the system. Hmm. But at the same time, 
to be able to push the system so that it actually starts delivering results. Yeah, we can just hope that he lives up to that expectation yes. and delivers. And uh, uh, talking about the scenario in India, uh, so I started with your article, which I read in 1998, right? And just 10 minutes back, I read your latest article, and that was about the BBC interview. We had this big Nirbhaya case in Delhi, and then the person who has been charged, mm -hmm. he is going out and giving this outrageous interview about it's a girl's fault, and this is how things happen to the girls who go out in the evening. So what do you think? What's going on in the country? We hear this news again and again, and then girl is to be blamed. And this kind of journalism where people are bringing that person on in open and he making those statements... Yeah, I mean, that was, it. well, to be fair, it was part of a larger BBC documentary. And I haven't seen the BBC because documentary. Because right now we just know this We part. just know what he's saying. So we don't yeah. know how it fits in with everything mm, else that they were saying. And so maybe it has a context. But the media has also mm -hmm. cottoned on to this part of what this guy is saying. Yeah. And my problem with that has been that, you know, I am very staunchly for freedom of expression. Everyone has a right to say. Mm. But that doesn't, but then you have to also ask, like, why you're giving someone a platform. To speak. And that as a journalist, you have to ask yourself. I mean, you face that every time when you invite a guest on your show. Sure. So you'll yes. have to decide like, OK, I'm going to bring this person in. Is this person going to add a certain value to the conversation? Is there something interesting we want to talk about? So it's not like I'm saying like, oh, just because he's been accused of rape or something, hmm. you know, he nobody he has no right to say anything. But it's equally a media house has to decide as to, you know, what purpose am I serving by bringing him out to spew whatever hmm. he has to to say. And but on the other hand, saying like, you know, he has said outrageous things about uh, that. Yes, you know, girls are not the same as boys and it's always a girl's. It's, you know, you have to what was she doing out late and yeah. she should have just not resisted. Hmm. Then she wouldn't have been killed. She would have, yeah, you know, which are, and. To me, that is like both horrific, but at the same time, um, as I mentioned in the article, there was a sting operation that Tehelka did a hmm. uh, couple of years ago in police stations around Delhi. And some of the things that those policemen were saying off camera about women and rape and, you know, the clothes they wear being the cause for the rape and why they shouldn't hmm. be dressed were not that different from what this guy was saying. Yes. Um, it's just that he acted, you know, he says he acted upon it and did, uh, was convicted of this horrendous crime. And those people are actually charged with preventing that crime from yeah, happening. On the other side. side. But, but the attitudes the of, of blaming hmm. the woman because she was out late, because she had a drink, because she was wearing a skirt, because she was with multiple boys, all of those things about blaming the thing is a larger pervasive cult thing that happens across the culture. And so that's where I think a lot of the conversation needs to happen in India because it's because it, often it gets diverted into a conversation about like, oh, they had this rape. So whether should we have capital punishment or should we not have capital punishment for rape? You know, so so that becomes it's about the punishment, but it doesn't change the conversation about the attitudes that mm. that that are at the basis of of this happening. 
Yes, and more than corruption or pollution or population, I think this is one issue which India really needs to address and has to come up with something because the way things are happening. Yeah, it's become an enormous issue. I mean, I don't know, honestly, whether it's a much bigger issue now than it was before. Maybe we're or knowing we, or now, now. But we know it about light, it more. Yes. We know about yes. it more now. More people are revealing uh, the stories, you know, before those stories would not be revealed. So mm-hmm. I don't know which way it is. But at the same time, but definitely it's something. And, uh, you know, when I said, when you, when you come to the U.S. now, people do ask you all the time. So what's going on? Yes, what's, yes. And that is, it's definitely a, it has definitely affected India's image abroad as a place. And I don't think, you know, I don't think anybody has, I don't think there are easy answers to it because this is a very deep-seated yes. thing. Because even the people who are working on it sometimes work on it in ways I find problematic because, like, the, for example, this BBC documentary was called India's Daughter. Yes. And so it is. it is often that... It's not that the assault is condemned because, you know, people will often say, tell people like, you know, you have to think of them as your mothers, as your mm, sister, as, yeah. as your daughter. And you're like, in the end, these things are wrong because they are wrong, because yeah. they are violating another individual's right to choose, right to life, right to liberty. It has really nothing to do with the fact that she is somebody's wife's sister daughter you know those are those relationships are not what makes this crime yeah, it uh, the is kind a of horrendous crime, crime. It, yes. and it is just needs to be treated as, as a, a crime, crime. and it, it's, it's not that oh if this woman was nobody's sister and if her parents had died already and you know she had nobody in the world that doesn't make her uh, justify anything that would happen to her i totally agree with you Sandeep, I can talk to you for hours and hours, but I know you have to go too. So what next? You have such a beautiful book and uh, you are in India now. And um, any plans, any other movie, documentary, uh, any other no. book in the making? No, there, um, well, I go, go back to India now to my like with First Post, uh, <laughs> where I'll be writing as before and doing my radio for the U.S. But yeah, I'm, you know, as this book sort of settles down, I'm thinking about a second book. Um, I don't, I'm mulling some ideas around it. I don't know actually whether it will be a book of fiction or nonfiction. I had been, I had toyed with the, I had actually, when I went to India, I had toyed with the idea of a sort of more nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. But then this book had happened. And so I was like, okay, let's go with this. But maybe I'll revisit that. Definitely. And we are already looking forward to your next book. And I must thank you. And I think I should thank your sister too. She is <laughs> the one who introduced you to this, right? Yes. <laughs> so all the best for all your future ventures. And whatever you are doing, I wish you all the best. And thank you so much for your time today and for talking to me and talking to our Chai Time listeners. Thank you. And thank you for having me on Chai Time. Sure, I hope to see you again, Sandeep. Thank you very much. Thanks.